0: This is The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. Loss, we each experience it in a variety of ways. Oftentimes, the repeated and prolonged cycles of grief can reveal our deepest sense of loss. Several weeks ago, we began our exploration of grief in episode number 155. In this week's episode with guest Victoria Volk, we share how you can gain a new perspective on grief, allowing you to see it in a new light. As a grief recovery expert, Victoria has dedicated herself to helping others recover from grief. Her own experience of loss has given her an understanding of the challenges and confusion that often accompany grief. She is passionately teaching others how to grieve in a healthy way, transforming their lives for the better. If you're grieving and feeling stuck, this episode is for you. In the grief recovering method, Victoria empowers us to begin the process of healing, wholeness, And peace. Tune in to find out how when we return to the light inside. Victoria Volk is a woman who has experienced a lot of grief, loss, and trauma throughout her life. Her father passed away when she was young and she was molested in the years that followed. She struggled with addiction in her early 20s, but she found her way out and has been sober for almost 20 years. She is passionate about helping others who are grieving because she herself knows how difficult this process can be. And through her learning and the methodology she discovered at the Grief Recovery Institute, she not only changed her own relationship with grief, she now is leading others into a newfound light. Good morning, Victoria.
1: Good morning. <laughs> um, my mic. I'm having an issue with my mic.
0: <laughs> I think there's something in the air. <laughs> I've been dealing with my own issues today. Nothing wants to work. So. <sighs> Oh, I there we have go! To laugh a little bit because I can feel your pain this morning. I've been going through a similar process myself today. Dan, <laughs>
1: what's you know? I know there's planets that are retrograde. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, let me see.
1: Let me check the. Okay, you can hear me good. Yes. Okay. You loud and clear. All right. Good. I'm here. Woo-hoo. Let me put my phone on silence.
0: Well, it is so good to have you here today.
1: Finally, <laughs> we made last. it.
0: Yes. <laughs> Let's take right. a moment and just rest into this moment. Yeah, take a
1: drink.
0: <laughs> no pressures, no hurries on my end. So, All right. How are you?
1: I'm good. And good.
0: you? Fantastic. It's been a busy couple weeks. things are good we've had a lot of social activity and i'm at a space where i'm about ready for a little break from the action (laughs)
1: do you have kids
0: we have adult kids we've been going through a cycle of weddings lately Mm. it's been like you know the old 20 weddings thing (laughs) (laughs) just one after the other and it's been great you know coming out of covid having a chance to reunite with friends and family and loved ones it's that moment now where we're like Okay, now we need a moment of peace. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so it's been fantastic. So all of your like kids' as friends they're getting married to nieces, yeah.
0: nephews, cousins. I had a cousin who got married last evening at 43 finally. <laughs> he's been the lone holdout of that round of cousins. (laughs) And, you know, the right one finally came along and we had his wedding last night. (laughs) We're planning now for our middle daughter's wedding in September of 2023. So that's coming up next. And we've got a engagement party coming up. So it's just kind of like one thing after After another. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I have a senior in high school and of all of my my mother-in-laws of all their grandkids now it's like with his class he also has a cousin his first cousin's graduating too they're in the same class so after these two boys graduate it's boom 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 it's all the grandkids one after the other (laughs) graduating so (laughs) yeah and then i'm sure babies and weddings of the older ones and yeah all the joys
0: of life everything that makes it rich and worth living so (laughs) well we'll celebrate that today it's it's kind of with that mind we turn our attention toward looking at grief so we've got those contrasts to look at yeah the
1: joy and the pain so with that said we
0: looked at grief a while back and i want to do this kind of as an extension because i love the methodology you bring so looking at how grief is a multi-dimensional emotional response Our sense of loss. So often we equate that sense of loss simply to the loss of a loved one through death, through those sorts of losses as being one of our more heartbreaking senses of loss. But, you know, we started to explore how we look at loss as a career position, loss of a sense of self sometimes, loss in the sense of trauma, especially. Abusive trauma where you have that loss of innocence, so to speak, that loss of self again. Also, I think one area we missed was that sense of loss or longing of a parent that's no longer present in a relationship. I've been pondering that. I've had a number of experiences lately where I've observed individuals who possibly are going through that. And I've taken a moment to ponder and say, hmm, I see a connection here. I see where that loss goes unrecognized a lot of times. Mm -hmm. A parent that's simply no longer in your life is a loss you're experiencing and maybe not having firsthand connection to experience that parent in the first place. So that was a very interesting aside that I'm kind of going down another road today. I'm going to let this roll as we jump in today because that's a thought I've been marinating with this morning. Say marinate, sitting with pondering as I've observed that in a number of ways lately, my own relative having an instance of that and wondering about that. How does that affect an individual when there's an absentee parent in that sense of losses there or that sense of longing kind of co-equates there, co-relates and resides the same to me? So I just want to earmark that today, maybe bounce that off of you because I can see some relation to our conversation today. So culturally, Let's jump in there if you're all ready to roll, Victoria.
1: I am because I got something to share on that. (laughs) Great. And this is the thing. So let's say that person who has a parent in their life, but yet they're an absentee parent. Like the person is living, but they're not in their life. And that parent dies. And that child, adult, what have you, goes to the funeral. Everyone wants to give their condolences. and. You know, and funerals are often a place where we, we only share the best about the person, yeah. right? Yeah. And so for someone who has a really conflicted relationship with the person who passed away in a very unique relationship compared to those who maybe knew that person as a friendship or even other family members who had a different kind of relationship with that person. This is where funerals can be really conflicting and really Mm -hmm. difficult for those people to attend because everyone around you is speaking so highly of the person and they're assuming that your relationship was a loving one, Mm -hmm. potentially, unless they really know the situation. The things that people say can just hurt so much to that person who experienced this loss, but yet has experienced that loss likely for many years and may feel actually relieved mm. that that person has passed and feeling guilt and shame and conflicted about that because here everybody else is feeling this other way and I'm feeling this way. Maybe I'm wrong to feel this way. So then we criticize ourselves and how we're grieving this person. You know, we eulogize people. In the brightest light. And yet, people do really hurtful things, not even intentionally. As parents, you know, we do the best that we can with what we know. This is why it's so important for us as parents and any parent listening to address our own stuff because we pass that on to our kids. The stuff that we know, we share that with our kids. And especially when it comes to how we've been taught how to grieve. And this is why this generational learning about grief and how we grieve, I'm so passionate about it. Because when adults and parents learn how to grieve in a healthy way, it transforms not only their own lives, but the lives of everybody they know, including their own children.
0: I'd like to look at that idea of passing on what we know as parents in that sense when the parent is absentee. Might there be that sense of loss from a child themselves of not having that opportunity to share that kind of relationship, to share that kind of bond, to have that exchange of that kind of knowing guidance of a parental figure when they're absent? Might that also be grieved?
1: Absolutely. And that was my personal experience. My father was diagnosed with cancer when I was six, six and a half. And within two years, he passed away, but he was sick that entire time. I was, I was the youngest of four. I was bounced around from house to house while my mother was with, you know, my dad at the hospital and doctor's appointments. And then my grandmother was also dying of melanoma at the same time. So she had her mother who was sick and her husband, the father of her three of her kids. Um, I have an older half sibling, but I didn't have that relationship with my father because he was taken when I was, you know, cancer took him when I was eight. So that is a relationship that I've had to grow up grieving and it's changed as I've grown. Like my grief has changed and evolved with me as I've grown. And when we don't have that parental guidance about what it means to grieve in a healthy way, because my mom surely didn't know. And she was beside herself because she was (laughs) her mother and her were very close. They talked every day and she did not know what to do about her own grief, much less mine. And so I was kind of just cast aside. Like someone even said at the funeral, I heard an adult say, well, she doesn't understand what's going on anyway. Mm -hmm. And so no one really sat me down and talked to me and told me what was happening. And so when especially children, when they're going through a grieving experience too, they'll make up their own stories. And so I see my dad, he's in a casket, he goes in the ground. Well, I guess that's what happens when you die. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And why did this happen to me? And then I was molested in the years that followed. And so all of my sense of safety, security, everything stripped away. I had no emotional connection with my mother because she was too wrapped up in her own emotions. And so I raised myself really, essentially, I really feel like I raised myself and it is a wonder that I'm even sitting here having this conversation and I do the work that I do today because I could have taken a very different path and I was on that different path with alcohol in my early twenties, but You know, a happenstance relationship, someone moved to my hometown, we connected years later, and we've been married now almost 20 years and three kids and Mm -hmm. my life changed. But that's not always what happens for people. But it still didn't change the fact that I, I didn't address my grief. And I didn't do that until 2019 when I discovered grief recovery. So I was deep in my grief and it was affecting my life negatively for over 30 years and it simply doesn't have to be that place that you stay in and i had a guest say to me one time when you lay you decay Mm -hmm. and i've never forgotten it and it's so true if we just give in to our grief and the pain of it a little piece of us dies every day
0: Mm. i'm gonna sit with that for just one second Because I think that's such a powerful statement today. Where you lay, you decay. My heart goes out to you. That had to be such a confusing, trying time as a young person, as a child. Compounding that. There exists in our society, in our culture, a whole myriad of confusing, conflicting messages we often receive around grief, how to deal with grief, how to cope with grief, how to manage through it, how to live through it, how to do this, how to do that. It just compounds. Where do we start to make sense of that? Where do we start to connect with it? Feel it truly becomes one of our greatest challenges as we approach it. I applaud you for finding that path through. As we address those confusing messages, you've identified what you call six myths of grief, which are typically passed down from culture to culture through preceding generations, influencing how we identify with. Can you share with us your perception of these six myths, if you would?
1: And they're not mine. They were okay, okay. they were developed let's clarify. by the, Yeah. They were <laughs> I I wish. <laughs> so yeah,
0: let's reel that back a little bit then.
1: Yeah. So The Grief Recovery Institute, which was founded over 40 years ago by a Vietnam veteran who was about to, he went on a beach and he was going to kill himself. Mm -hmm. His young child, an infant, um, was born prematurely and died. Subsequently, his marriage fell apart. So the man had lost everything. And he had like a voice in his head that said, what do I wish would have been there for me? And he was working as a contractor at the time. John James is his name. He's since passed. But he started to shift his focus from himself and started to help others in their grief by answering that one question and, and actually really trying to discover what that answer was. And the grief recovery method came to be because of what he was connecting between all of the grievers whom he was talking to, like himself who had experienced a lot of trauma and loss. Again, he was a Vietnam veteran. And there were six myths that were identified that majority of all grievers experience, maybe not all, but most. And most times as children, we have our first experience with loss when we have a pet that dies. Mm. And parents might say, who don't know and understand how to grieve, right. And how to address a child's loss because for a child that could be their best friend, especially if they have a hard time connecting with their peers. So their dog dies and the parents might say, Oh, don't feel bad, Jeffrey. We can go to the pet store next week. We can get another dog. Mm. So that child is then learning, don't feel bad. And then if they cry and cry and cry and cry about it, the parents might say, Jeffrey, just go to your room and cry. I don't want to hear you crying about this dog. Okay. So the child then learns to grieve alone. It's another myth. And with going to get the dog a new dog, replacing the old dog, we learn to replace the loss, yes. which is another myth. And when adults in our lives, or yeah, I'll say the adults, the parents, the adults in the child's life goes through a loss themselves, and they are the fixer. They are the one that can do it all and they, you know, think of a typical type A type personality, but not not always, right? Someone that's just gonna come in and take charge and and has a lot of balls in the air to juggle, right? Yeah. yeah. They just gotta be strong. Mm-hmm. So they don't let anybody else see them crumble. They don't let anybody else see them cry, including their own children. And so then children get the message that, oh my mom's really strong or my dad's really strong. Or the male in the relationship, or the husband or the spouse, definitely take on that role most likely, to be strong, be strong for their wife, be strong for their family. That's another myth. So then children learn this because it's emulated from their parents. And we all know when people say time heals all wounds, and that's another myth, that time heals. And it doesn't. Time just passes. But it's the action. That you take in time that heals, not time itself.
0: Mm. I want to look at that from a couple angles. First, it's coming to mind to me to look at how that act of let's replace the grief, let's find something to fill that void, so to speak, to heal that pain, to move beyond it. I can see that pattern where that would repeat throughout life and you kind of find that replacement thing. You find that sense that this is going to, validate that pain i felt rather than feeling and validating it for what it was i can see how that would surface as you mentioned in that drive for achievement that drive for fixing or correcting i could see how that accumulated trauma just keeps rolling around building up in that energy storing in our central nervous system and just resurfacing every time we experience anxiety stress and
1: pain Yes grief is cumulative and it's yeah. cumulatively negative negative. and here's, uh, like, here's a story just to illustrate like for me personally so going into my teen years yeah I go to parties and I drink occasionally but it wasn't something that I leaned on to numb out or you know it wasn't something I, for some reason I had this knowing between right and wrong even though it wasn't like necessarily emulated or taught to me But I had a good friend who was, her parents had gone through a divorce and she was the opposite. She couldn't take a shower without having a beer. And she was 13, 14, and really struggled with that divorce. And that's a story that I guarantee you is repeating today, many times over in many households for many kids. And so going into adulthood, you know, like I said, our grief, Changes with us. We evolve with our grief. Our grief evolves with us. That pattern came to my life, right? Like then I started to, I had more things happen to me, more grief happen. And it was like the tip of the iceberg, right? If we think of our, you know, when you come into a relationship with someone, they always say you bring your baggage with you. You literally bring your baggage with you. Think of every grief experience (laughs) you've had as a suitcase. And if people just dump their suitcases of all of the trauma and the grief that they've experienced in childhood, you are bringing that to your relationship and that's impacting your life in all areas. It impacts your ability to make money, to make sound decisions, to trust yourself, to not rely on others for love, affection, affirmation, like this is where I think self-love and self-care has really become like buzz terms and really top of mind, especially after COVID. But it's absolutely true that we always tend then to look for someone else to fill that need or something else. In grief recovery, we call them STURBS, that short-term energy-relieving behaviors, things that we resort to to feel better for a short period of time because the pain is painful the emotional pain is painful so it might be shopping it might be gambling it might be pornography it might be relationships alcohol any kind of drug or substance
0: achievement
1: success like just wow. this wow. just that this drive, drive. To- yep yep
0: yeah and that itself often then produces that side impact of burnout a lot of times. As a result, the coping mechanism from the uncovered grief being that sense of achievement, that drive, that endless pursuit of success. Sometimes that's not to marginalize then the value in our successes, but realizing unconsciously or subconsciously what might be going on.
1: What's motivating that behavior.
0: Yeah. What is the real drive behind
1: it? Yeah. Feeling a lack of self-worth growing up, being told that you aren't worthy of something, you know, especially if you grew up in a, like a, a, lack mindset household, you have to work hard for everything that you get. Nothing comes easy. Right. Yeah. I think so many of us have those money, similar money stories where we grew up in a house with a lot of lack. Yeah. And here's the thing. It's like, that's the perception, right? It's the perceived lack. Yeah. I can so. see
0: we're also, you know, that, Back to the absentee parent equation comes in that coping mechanism for that unresolved sense of loss, that lack of a guiding force to say, you know, these are healthy methods of building your life, building career, maybe absentee. Along with that, you are finding that replacement.
1: Well, think of all the situations that happen in people's lives where that occurs. You can have, you know, imprisonment. Of a of a parent, you yeah. can have a parent who is struggling with a substance abuse disorder. Um, you could have a parent that is struggling with a mental health challenge, yeah. and they just don't have the capacity to <clears throat> or ability.
0: Yeah, to a truly narcissistic parent. You know, a lot of times I feel that's mislabeled, perhaps. But when a parent truly is narcissistic, they've pretty much checked out of everybody, including
1: themselves. Yes. And that's a difficult one because because leave
0: it open. But I feel, you know, I can see those patterns. I feel I can see how that interacts at times.
1: Well, and you have to come to terms as the child of a parent who is a narcissist. You have to come to terms (laughs) with the fact that that parent is never going to be the parent that you hoped, wished and needed them to be. That's where it's so conflicting. Grief can be so conflicting for people. And you can have, you know, four siblings in the same household who all experience the same loss and they will exhibit their grief very differently. Why? Because the relationship to that person who died was very different. Every relationship is individual and unique. So what I see happening oftentimes, especially, you know, adult siblings who when a parent starts to get ill or a parent passes away, well, you're not showing up as you should be or you don't seem as upset as you should be. And, and then one child, one adult child is maybe a wreck because that was they were had a really close relationship with that parent. And maybe the others didn't. And so it really just creates a another layer of grief, right? Because then this is where we learn to grieve alone. Yeah. yeah. We don't share in the emotional loss, the emotional grief. And this because every child in a home especially if there's an age gap experiences that parent in a different phase of that parent's life Mm -hmm. yeah i often i've not often but i've told my sister she was nine years older than me so when my her dad passed away she was she graduated high school shortly thereafter and she joined the air force and she was gone and she was like a second mom to me so i had that loss but you know, she got the best of our mom because she grew up with my mom having her mother and having our father, right? She grew up with her. Yeah, same person. Different
0: experiences. Different Different set of variables to compare and contrast. You know, so often, you know, we say that, well, I'm a different person. Is the person simply just changing and evolving with those experiences? Mm -hmm. Sometimes is that person regressing? Sometimes is that person stuck? And not moving into growth with those experiences, both the parent and the child. You know, and as we move into adulthood, are you still that wounded child?
1: What often happens too, when we have a, I'll just call it a big loss, right? Someone we're really close to, close relationship with, and they pass away. What often happens when we experience a loss like that, you know, it shakes everything up in our world. But it can also bring up old wounds. And old losses too. And so things can come to the forefront that you may not have thought about for many years. It's especially true with trauma. You have another traumatic experience. And let's say you just even get in a car accident. And the last time you felt that way, felt so scared or felt that way, and that, that fight or flight, that energy in your body, you know, like, am I going to die? You might think of other instances where you felt fear. And that anxiety, and it brings up just everything else to the surface so many times. And so it can feel very confronting. And so this is where grief can be so overwhelming, too, for people. It's like, I don't even know where to begin. I got all this stuff just coming up. It's like 30-year-old stuff. Well, I don't know. I don't understand why this is coming up now. Like, I thought I buried that. I thought I stuck <laughs> that down, you know? That's
0: the problem so Yes, much. yes repeatedly stuffing it down. You know, I like to call it rather than our baggage, you know, or that suitcase, our stuff drawer Mm Because that's essentially what we do is we continue to stuff things in there. We continue to stuff the thing that's been there. You know, you think about that one drawer we often have in our house. You know, I know I do. I know I do in life. (laughs) Catch all drawer. (laughs) Catch all. Then it's like, yeah, this shit's coming back up again. there, in and of itself. You know, you start to see it as shit because you don't process it. You start to relive it. You start to avoid it. And those avoidant things start to annoy you.
1: <laughs> I, uh,
0: what do I do with them? You know?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, I heard a term, I said this before on the podcast, but I'd actually, there's someone that actually has a program called this, but where people, you know, you just get to the point where you're emotionally constipated. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> so you mentioned shit, and it's like, yeah, it's we get so backed up with our own stuff, and we can go into the energetics of this yeah. because I'm a certified biofield tuner, which is all about addressing the energy mm-hmm. that is in our field around us that extends oh, awesome. five to six feet out from us. And so when you are come into a room and you know, even getting on the call with you, right. You can feel the person's energy. Like you can feel what energy they're bringing to (laughs) to the table, you know? So if you come into a room and you meet somebody for the first time, or maybe you haven't seen them in a long time and you, you get a sense of "Hmm, something's not right or something's off or, or "Hmm, I'm not sure if this person is, you know, I'm not vibing with their energy, you know, like because our antennas are always on. Our energetic antennas are always taking in information. And I never understood this about myself until probably two, two to three years ago that I take in all of the information in the room of everybody. And I have learned how to kind of put this barrier between my, my personal space and personal space of others so that it doesn't drain me. But especially with grief and trauma as a kid, there's so many pictures of me sleeping. Mm-hmm. I would, first of all, I learned the whole grieve alone. So I would go hide under my bed to cry. Mm-hmm. I would never cry in front of people. And What happens when you do that and you learn to stuff it and you learn to hide it, you get very angry. You can get very angry. And so I grew up into an angry adult and took everything to heart and thought the world was out to get me and really just surrendered to this idea of, you know, to the way you decay Peace To speak to that is I felt like I was just meant for a life of suffering. Mm. But learning about energy and, and the grief, the energy of grief itself and trauma and all of that, it's really opened my eyes to really truly how much our cells store from our emotional experiences when we allow ourselves to become emotionally constipated. What's the key to a happy and fulfilling life? I think it's the fear of showing up in our purity and our truth. We fear the sight. That's what I feel like this whole journey has brought me to. Oftentimes, the things that we think will make us happy will not bring us safety and security. At the end of the day, we are a sovereign energetic being who has all the tools already on the inside. It is within your fingertips. You can create the life that you want and the only person that is stopping you from creating that life is you.
0: Our greatest transformation happens from deep within. We're all on the journey to discover the light inside. That beacon which guides us to live our truest, most authentic self. Visit us at www.the Lie to find out more. We hear it again and again. Time heals all wounds. Yet the emotional wounds of unresolved emotional trauma remain stored as unprocessed emotional energy. It lies dormant in our central nervous system waiting to trigger emotionally reactive responses. When we're grieving, we often look for outlets for our pain. Many of these outlets we learned when we were children, like when our mother gave us a cookie or a treat to help us feel better. Victoria, let's look back at those short-term energy-relieving behaviors, if we will, perhaps as they surface as that bubbling over. Can you give us a little more in-depth understanding, maybe, of what exactly we define as those short-term energy-relieving behaviors.
1: Okay, again, they're behaviors that we resort to to feel better for a short period of time. That can even be Facebook scrolling. Mm -hmm. That can be social media use. Yeah. That could be, you know, binging on Netflix for days at a time. Anger can be a stirb.
0: What about passive aggression?
1: Yeah, so example like bringing up the energy piece again so if we are someone who is stuffing 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 we might be more likely to resort to anger or substance use to numb out to forget to become more like society wants you to be right you it's more acceptable to be happy than it is to be an angry person or than it is to be yeah. a sad person or a depressed person so we use these things to feel better and if we don't do that though right if we try yeah. to just put on this i'm fine front which we say in grief recovery is feelings inside not expressed is what fine mm-hmm. is and how often do we say that hey how are you doing <laughs> i'm fine this is where we see disease so dis-ease in the body creates disease so if you're not someone who's using those stirs, you might be someone who is internally angry and it's making you sick mm-hmm. which at 16 i was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome and i i at 32 I had polyps removed. My dad died of colon cancer. And interestingly, just to illustrate this point, both my father's parents had colon cancer at some point and his brother. There's a lot of grief and a lot of trauma in his life, in that whole family's lives. And none of his siblings made it beyond age 65, not one. My dad was 44. so. It's very important that people understand that not addressing your grief is killing you. And if it's not killing you, it's killing your relationships slowly.
0: There again, it's important for our longevity down the long haul that we process those emotions. Whether those be feelings from the past, present, or of the future, (laughs) the central nervous system doesn't discriminate. I'd like to look from your perspective, if we might, at where you align with the idea of that grief passing from person to person, that idea of emotional energy passing from person to person and how that then at times is thought to become, like you said, that irritable bowel syndrome. Is that a relationship that you view and have a perspective on?
1: I have two different perspectives of this yes, and one from each different parent. So One of my biggest ahas when I went through grief recovery myself and I worked through the relationship with my father, which, well, how do you work on a relationship with your parent if you only knew them for eight years, right? You've got lots to say. You're emotionally incomplete in a lot of areas when someone isn't in your life, just as much as if they are in your life, right? One of my biggest ahas for me was that I was carrying grief that was not mine. I, especially when I became a parent, and I had my own issues with my own gut stuff. I just, it was a lot of, oh my gosh, I can't imagine what my dad experienced, you know, knowing he was going to die, knowing that this, you know, he he was sick and watching our birthdays go by and wondering if he'll see the next one and what he experienced in Vietnam. I'm a veteran too. What he experienced in Vietnam, he came home and he slept with a knife under his mattress. All these different things. Like I I because I'm so empathic that I was at taking on emotion, putting myself in his shoes, and it was affecting me. Like I was feeling his grief as if it were my own. Mm-hmm. So that was a big aha for me in my grief recovery. Secondly, coming back to the energy piece and biofield tuning and how we work in the energy field, because our biofield, again, which is The energy that extends five to six feet out from us. The theory with biofield tuning, which is the biofield informs the body and the body informs the biofield. What I have personally found with clients sometimes is I can pick up on a traumatic birth or Mm -hmm. a traumatic gestational period of when they were in the womb or at their birth based on their mother. So especially as mothers, right, who carry the child, just like we, if we drank beer, the beer would then be passed on to our child, right? We are emotionally stress. Anything that we are experiencing while pregnant impacts the child, just as if you drink a can of beer, right? So this emotionally stress impacts the child's development. It can, right? Yeah. I can't say yeah. it always does. <laughs> but emotionally though, emotionally, yeah. these these let's say the mother is in a constant state of fear. Let's say that yeah. she's in a really terrible abusive situation, mm. scared for her life, right? That's traumatic. That's trauma. And if we agree that trauma is stored in our body, what do you think is happening to yeah. that fetus, to that child? So this is why. I can pick up on it in someone's biofield because the theory is, is that our memories are stored in our biofield, in our energetic field. It imprints us, leaves an imprint.
0: That's something I've always been fascinated with is that idea of a passing that generational energy as I'm kind of pondering it now. So often we look at that stress from the post traumatic aspect of it. How much of that trauma might be pre-stress? Now, I don't have data right here in front of me. I don't have that direct relationship. I'm going to admit my own, perhaps, unknowing ignorance of it, in air quotes today, but I feel that's an area worth looking at. How much of that is pre-traumatic? Looking from that combat veteran aspect, I have some experience working with individuals. Fought PTSD post combat, couldn't quite get over some of those humps, so to speak, where they kept experiencing that prolonged PTSD through some past regression work. We were able to uncover some childhood traumas that were already PTSD that they took into combat and compounded some of their experiences with children in the combat scenario. Really tipping that back to when they were a child and mirroring it and seeing trauma in a child. There was an unconscious knowing in some of that trauma that played in regressing back. We were able to pinpoint where some of that childhood trauma had originated in their own experience and open that doorway that then went back and bridged some of those gaps. The trauma that was leading up to the trauma that become another trauma, so to speak, and finding those patterns and pathways. I think that's an area we could pay more mindfulness to as we all go forward. What's happening pre, we so often neglect. So often we say it's all behind us, yet we've never allowed it to pass through us to begin with. And we're constantly running and go. I think that's one of our key aspects today to kind of leave out there and let others marinate in. <laughs> find the value and purpose. So, you've mentioned, as we're moving through all of these aspects of grief, the important role forgiveness plays. That's kind of a broad jump in point. Let's look at some of those advantageous and beneficial roles that forgiveness plays in our cycles of grief.
1: Well, I'll jump into the idea of substance use and how that cycle continues and you might have an experience where you're using alcohol I'll just use that for example and you start hiding it you're hiding it what does that do creates more shame and it perpetuates the problem because you're not being honest about it with yourself first so therefore you're not honest about it with others yeah. so that cycle continues so this is where I've read and I believe it's true that connection with other people can help break those cycles and patterns of addiction. That connection is the anecdote. Yeah. And forgiveness for yourself can be very powerful in that mm-hmm. experience. So if you feel like though that you hold shame or guilt, guilt is a huge one too. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps then you need to apologize for something and the act of apologizing can reduce that shame and guilt not just like a passive you know i'm so sorry i you know genuinely meaning it right like coming to a place where you want to heal this addiction you want to get over because an addiction is not who you are it's not i actually just was listening to dr gabor mate he was I kind of love how he reframed this whole addiction thing, but he was talking about how like your addiction is not something it's like, I have an addiction. It's not something you, cause when you have something, you can just get it back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's not your identity. It's not who you are. So that can be shifted. That whole idea can be shifted. Now, if you, especially in the case of abuse, trauma, someone else inflicted on you, I personally had a really difficult time with this, yeah. but in grief recovery, we do have a way to address forgiveness if you're not quite there yet. Um, but I will say that it is very, it's for you, the person who yeah. experienced that trauma or that experience because of someone else at the hands of somebody else. Forgiveness is for you. It's not for them. And, you know, we say in grief recovery, too, resentment is a poison that you take hoping the other person dies. And how often are we waiting for an apology that we'll never get? And so while I'm waiting for an apology from this person who did this to me, where does that leave me? I'm stuck in emotional jail. I'm stuck in limbo. That's very disempowering.
0: Do we perhaps put ourselves in that jail with some of those guilt and shame mechanisms. I want to look at that aspect of tiptoeing back a little here, lying to ourselves. If we reference that for ourselves as lying to ourselves, might we be instilling some of those concepts of guilt and shame ourselves? Can we reframe that to simply say, be more transparent with ourselves and remove some of that guilt and shame that doesn't necessarily have to be there. Right. Yes. There's energy in that. We don't often, I feel from my personal perspective as individuals do that for ourselves to reframe that perspective, just catching yourself saying, putting it in that shit drawer of shit, feeling shit, emotions, you're constantly shitting on everything. I'm going to put it out there bold and blunt because it carries that kind of bold, blunt, unconscious energy for us.
1: And we project it. Yeah. Yes, we project it out. Just simply
0: calling it out and saying that is what it is if I call it that. But if I'm just being transparent about it, I see it. I acknowledge it without projecting that guilt and shame. We let it go in that sense that. We're not holding on to that hot coal of resistance, that hot coal of wanting to be kind of vengeful about it sometimes.
1: The hot coal of the story, because we get so tied to the story and, you know, there are people who can recount what happened to them. Like, so let's say something traumatic happened, right? And many years ago. And you just find yourself repeating that story. And I, you know, this happened to me and that happened to me and this happened to me and that happened to me. And then this, and then that, and then yeah. this, and, then, and you know, it's like, I see this in grief. The people, the clients that I work with, we start out with the story of what happened and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then I ask, well, how did it make you feel? That's a very different story.
0: I'm going to relate to that for me. It was anger. Mm-hmm anger i held on to that hot coal for years Mm -hmm. me too till i went through a past regression with marissa pierce and went back and literally forgave my inner child forgave myself for not feeling those feelings and processing what was going on then till then was i able to move on now moving on and allowing those feelings to pass through was not rejecting them, not saying I would never be angry again, was simply saying when the anger arises, you recognize it, you think it, you feel it, you process it in a less adverse way, a way that's not hurtful and projecting to others. Simply saying you're angry should be a beautiful blessing. Expressing it in an outburst, in hurtful, harmful manners, by no means. But finding that outlet to say, you know what? I'm angry. Being able to look someone transparently in the eye and honestly say, this upsets me. This hurts me. This does become overwhelming and stressful. And I can acknowledge that. I can recognize what you're doing is irritating me. Why then is it irritating me? Because it's my feeling. Mm -hmm. It's my experience. It's my process, my emotion. And that's all right. That's fantastic. That's a wonderful thing to love and nurture. You change the energy around it. You don't ignore it. You don't run from it. You just say, we're moving with it. We're feeling it. And we're just finding a new relationship and
1: meaning to it. Changing the meaning to it. And that speaks to this aspect of grief recovery too, which was transformative for me with my own anger. And it's taking 1% responsibility. Just 1%. Because people might say, Mm -hmm. especially in cases of abuse, child abuse, why do I need to take 1% responsibility? This wasn't, I didn't ask for this, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, but I'm the one that's holding on to this anger. I'm the one that's holding on to this, this resentment. So it is my responsibility, not anybody else's, to take ownership of how I'm feeling and then decide what to do about it. So this is where people can get really stuck in that victim mindset. And that's where I was for over 30 years. I viewed myself as yeah. a victim. And that was the story I told. This happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me, this, this, and this, and then, and then, and then, and then. And then. But I never spoke to how it made me feel. Yeah. We become so emotionally incomplete with everything that happens to us throughout our lives. At some point, we are like a tea kettle and we either implode or we explode. Mm-hmm. And we can explode by using those stirs, or we implode with disease,
0: or both. When we think of those. I know myself when I was in that cycle, when I still tiptoe and experience that cycle, when those moments of anger still arise, because you know they happen.
1: And it's valid. How many times as yeah. parents do we shut children down when they're <laughs> angry? Right. what tends to happen Mm -hmm.
0: that short outburst you very forcefully want to reject that hurt and pain away rather than sitting with the hurt for a moment and saying why might this hurt and how might i approach that story now how might i allow that story to pass through me to become whatever it becomes hopefully you can allow that to pass through and start to guide or follow the current and allow it to flow in a more advantageous, beneficial manner. If you want to label that growth, label it growth. If you want to label it evolution and it's beneficial, advantageous, label it that. Whatever energy creates value and meaning for you, to me, is how I've changed that relationship. I'm going to own it for whatever I experience it because it's the only way I truly can experience it. Find the meaning that works for you and question why you might try to puke it back on somebody else if it's not. To me, it's become that essential. I'm going to say essential. I'm going to be meaningful with my words today. It's that essential of a value and asset, a tool, a trait, a characteristic. We create labels simply to identify with things and try to have some understanding about it. Try to see the angles, try to grow and evolve with it. Hopefully we're not trying in a way where we force it itself rather than allowing it to pass through us and follow the tide,
1: follow the current, follow the flow. A lot of resistance in that process for people, you know, and that's you have to ask yourself, what is the cost of resisting looking at your childhood? with a microscope and it's not to blame or shame our parents but it's to bring an understanding to why we as adults do what we do respond how we respond and it's because of this pattern of thought and beliefs that are passed down so how we combat that is we challenge our beliefs Is this really mine? Is this what I believe about this? Is this what I really think about grief? Do I really believe that I am meant for a life of suffering because I saw that emulated for me? Or can I challenge that belief by learning new tools, learning new information, integrating and implementing it and taking action? Because information is useless if you don't do anything with it. You know, we've got, we live in a time where information is at your fingertips 24 7 podcasts youtube books audible like courses we can learn anything about anything for the most part for free but all of this advice too and all of this information out there you have to learn how to discern what's for you and what you're going to implement and integrate into your life because all advice yeah. at the end of the day is based on that person, what they value as well. That's another topic, but people yes. always give advice based on what they value, right? Yes. <laughs> I value growth. I value growth, right? But if I'm talking to someone who doesn't value growth, they're not, they have earmuffs on. They're not listening. They're not taking any We all define that
0: by our perspective. Yes. I like to look at life from my perspective, like a pair of shoes. You know, when you go to buy a pair of shoes, what do you do a lot of times? I know what I do a lot of times. Try on a pair, walk around in them, see how it feels. I'm not quite falling in with these. They're not quite the pair that I want to go down that journey with. Do you throw the shoes aside and curse the shoes? these shoes were not for me da, 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 da. I'm gonna throw them aside or do you simply say next shoes please thank you for the opportunity to test it out mm-hmm. and step into that pair perhaps these pair didn't get you to the next step do you set them aside tidy them back up for the next individual to experience and simply step into the next pair till you find the pair you step into that journey with let's go on back and listen to to some Alan Watts today. You know, Alan Watts can be out there and challenge us. Watts constantly was saying, what you do is right now. And right now becomes the next day, tomorrow and everything after. So right now, what are you doing with the shoes? What are you doing with life? What are you doing with the opportunities and experiences, challenges, whatever you have before you? Are you casting them aside and saying, eh, I'm going to thumb my nose at it? Or do you say, yeah, simply, Thank you for the opportunity. Next, please.
1: The interesting thing, I love that analogy. And the interesting thing, though, about opportunity is that when you are dismissing your own grief and not feeling yeah. into it, you don't, it's really difficult to see yeah. opportunity. Mm-hmm. I don't personally, that was my experience. <laughs> like it was really, you, you don't yeah. have a sense of hope for the future, right? You don't see, and because you don't really see yourself clearly, you don't see other people clearly, there's such a greater cost.
0: That is a great point today, because in our optimism, we turn a blind eye, perhaps, to that present moment for another. Let's reel it back to that moment. How then might we embrace that moment and form a new light when we find ourselves in that spot?
1: I think it comes back to experimenting, right? Kind of what you were saying is experimenting with what, in order to discover what feels good for you, not what everybody else says should feel good for you. You have to experiment and you have to, like you said, try on the different shoes, try on the different books, read the different books, listen to the different podcasts or what have you. Resonating with something is a cue That that feels aligned for you. And if we follow that curiosity, bring that curiosity into our grief experience, it feels more like a journey rather than this suffering. I don't know if that answered your question. I think it took us
0: up to an edge where others can form their own view of it. Is it the shoes themselves that are taking us on that journey? Or ultimately, is it still our own two feet that get us there? We've went real esoteric today and it's kind of divested somewhat from grief. But as we look at grief, we see where life is interconnected, where all things eventually connect
1: to everything else. Yes. And I can elaborate there because <laughs> what I what I found personally for me and what I've seen for other people too, in people I know or grievers I've worked with, everything leads to the next thing. So once we've addressed the grief, however, and for me, it was, you know, my, I would say my personal growth started, my journey started in 2014 when I had had enough was enough and I got Tony Robbins program and I got this other program and I started reading personal development books and just, I started to take in information and I started to just I was taking every personality test because I didn't know who I was. I think that's where we start. Like, get to know you. (laughs) What do you value? What is important to you? Who were you before grief came in? What lit you up as a child? Do you play anymore? You know, we lose the sense of play as adults. We disconnect from our own inner Being, so it's really coming back to home within ourselves and utilizing the information and the tools to slowly chip away at all the stuff that's in the way. And when you feel alignment, it feels so good. When like you have ease, when you feel at peace within yourself. And I think that's for me what I've learned is I was not at peace. And I think that's true for anybody. So many people in grief, you just don't feel a sense of peace within yourself. And so it's rediscovering you, the 2.0 after grief, because grief changes you. But who you were as a kid, you're still there. You're still in there. And so it's bringing aspects of that back to life, that sense of play, that curiosity, and letting one thing lead to the next thing. so for me, it was grief recovery that I found. And then it was Reiki. And then it was UMap, which is all about holistic approach to um, where we learn our values and our strengths, how we're wired, because once we deal with the grief, it's like we ask ourselves a big question, What now? What do I want to do with my life now? Especially if you have like a loss of a spouse. Maybe they were the breadwinner. Who am I without this person in my life? I have these kids I got to feed. You know, what do I do? Well, you address the grief and then you discover a path forward. That's where your values come in and how to make decisions. But we lose ourselves in our own grief. We forget who we are. If all of that was taken away, who are you? Are you compassionate and kind? You know, but then those moments when someone says something hurtful, you probably weren't compassionate and kind back, right?
0: It's so it, often be the case. Yeah, it brings out <laughs>
1: aspects of ourselves that we may not be proud of, right? And so just think about the cost of not addressing your grief. It's so much more than what people even probably have given any thought to.
0: Putting that one foot in front of the other. I know we often say just move on, but putting that one foot in the front of the other Perhaps keeping us from staying in that one spot and decaying, as you mentioned.
1: Yeah, but people say that, right? We'll yeah. just move on. Just get over it. It's like been a year. You should just, you should be over it by now. People say that, but they don't tell you how. Yeah. And the people that are saying that haven't addressed their own stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, you know, you have to learn how to tune people out too. It's easy to recognize, it's easier to recognize who here's I'll say this if you are deep in grief you don't go to the support group asking for the advice of the person sitting next to you who is deep in their grief right (laughs) you maybe go to a different support group where they're taking action and they're doing things to move people forward and I'm not dismissing the fact that support groups offer connection But I will say the caveat that if you leave feeling worse about yourself and your own grief, going home after that support group, or if you're in a support group with people who've been going there for 10 years, do you want that to be you? When I work with grievers one-on-one, I tell you in 12 weeks, you'll be a different person. And I don't want you to need me after 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. That's the goal, to be able to stand on your own two feet, to feel empowered. To have the tools and the knowledge to know what to do when life smacks something else in
0: the face. Standing on those two feet of your own, are you putting the shoes on the feet to kind of protect and pad that journey? Being the steps and actions to address that grief, to feel it, to move through it. But by the same token, not putting a rock in your own shoe that's going to make that journey more uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. What might be that rock? That gives you the limp that's hindering that journey. I think that's a great insight sometimes perhaps to look at from my perspective, because I can be guilty at times throwing a rock in things, putting it in my own shoe, catching yourself and saying, simply correct the course without the guilt and shame, without beating yourself up over it.
1: And that's the clue, right? That something isn't aligned. Either you're not speaking authentically about how you're feeling about a situation yeah. or you know how you're feeling about something. And so you're holding it in. You have that rock in your shoe, <laughs> right?
0: Or throwing it at someone else.
1: Or throwing it at that someone That
0: hot else. coal, back to that hot coal yep. of the story. Of the story. In that great proverb, ultimately many, that story is the underlying thing that's causing you to take the action.
1: And how many times, though, in our lives do we have a situation that we perceive completely wrong? <laughs> we come to this conclusion in our own minds that this person meant this when they said that or did that. Oh, you weren't talking about me? No, I wasn't talking no. about you. And you could have been pissed and sad and angry for weeks for nothing. No. Right? Yeah. Because you perceived that person was saying <laughs> it about you.
0: Uh, 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 right? A great example. I sat this morning. I have a dear close friend of mine. Who's also in the self help space, the coaching space, talking about that very same thing about how you view story, how you view your interactions with others, and how it's a reflection of what you believe, you know, what you're bringing to light. I'm listening to that and relating that to some of my own experiences over the last couple of weeks and saying that's exactly the point is. You project that belief a lot of times, and that person might have experienced something completely different. And it's very illustrative of how we make those connections sometimes. Do you make the meaning one that benefits you, or do you throw that rock at things?
1: Here's the thing, too. I just want to throw this out there because sometimes there is, it's not like you, let's just say, for example, this, (laughs) this in your scenario, if I'll be, I'll play him, right? It's not you. It's an aspect of you that reminds me of somebody else who did this thing to me.
0: Simply the mirror. It's simply the mirror. Do you throw the rock at the mirror? Pretty much shattering your own reflection. Or do you just simply look and view? What might I learn? What might I gain value from with that reflection back
1: at me? Or I have an open and honest conversation. Yeah. On that note, when it comes to grief recovery, the beautiful thing about it is (laughs) that you don't have to have a conversation with the person. I don't have to have a conversation with the person who sexually abused me. I can work through that relationship, Mm -hmm. relationship, in air quotes, without ever confronting him. I can work on a relationship with someone who's still in my life. Maybe it's a less than loving relationship. Without ever confronting them, I can work through forgiveness. I can take 1% responsibility. I can make apologies. And I can make these significant emotional statements that have things that I've wanted to say and I've never been able to because either they, A, they died or B, they would just get defensive. And that's not a person I can have a conversation with, right? Yeah. So there are those people, right? Where we just can't have a conversation with because they are where they're at in their journey. And so that's the beautiful thing about grief recovery too, is that it's all for you, the griever.
0: I want to thank you for this lovely conversation today. It truly has been a joy to share your love, light, and energy today, Victoria. I am so grateful for this opportunity.
1: And I am as well. Thank you so much for letting me share.
0: Modern loss. To navigate it, We may need to have more candid conversations about our perceptions and our experiences. There is no right or wrong time frame for grieving. How long it takes can differ from person to person. And how we each encounter loss, as unique as each of us. The long arc of loss is a long arc of resilience. And on this journey, that journey to rediscover the light inside, we're all just beginners. If you found value and meaning in this episode, please share it with a friend or a loved one. And as always, we're grateful for you, our valued listening community. This has been The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker.